Hey student bodies, welcome to the second meeting of Super Chillers, an exclusive club where we read retro YA horror novels. For today's meeting, we read Missing by R.L. Stein. First, their parents disappeared. Then, the real terror began. Please help. Our parents are missing. What would you do if your parents didn't come home, didn't call, left no note? At first, Mark and Kara Burroughs aren't terribly alarmed. Their parents have stayed out late before. But then other things start to go wrong. Mark's girlfriend Gina breaks up with him and suddenly disappears. The police don't seem at all interested in finding Mark and Kara's parents. And their mysterious cousin who boards with them seems to be spying on their every move. When murder strikes, Mark and Kara learn their terror is only beginning. Someone wants them to disappear too, but why? The answer lies deep in the Fear Street woods. But will they live long enough to find it? We'll find out. <laughs> That's a pretty good pretty good uh, synopsis on the back. I feel like it's accurate. Yeah, I, I think it's very accurate. I'm excited to see what's lying deep within Fear Street woods. <laughs> Um, well, I've heard uh, stories about a giant <laughs> guinea pig back there that you better watch out for. He'll uh, munch on your unopened bean cans. <laughs> that seemed like a little bit of a Goosebumps crossover. <laughs> for sure. I thought we were moving into like Ghosts of Fear Street territory, which is like the, the middle grade Fear Street books that have nothing to do with the uh, mainline Fear Street books. <laughs> So we're, we're talking about Missing. I'm very excited to be talking about this book for a number of reasons. It is an early Fear Street that I had not read before. You had read this one before, correct? It's been a while, but yes, it was, yeah. it was great to come back to it. Oh, it has so many <laughs> surprises and baffling moments to share with us. Yeah, I was thrilled. Um, I mean, this is definitely one that probably actually written by uh, R.L., uh, Mr. Bob himself. And, uh, you know, you can tell it's got some of his hallmarks for sure. So I I'm ready to dig into it. We like to start by talking about the covers of these books, because, of course, I mean, how can you not? <laughs> they always have, especially when we're talking about these early Fear Street covers. Uh, we have some rather moody and evocative cover art. Do you want to walk us through your description of, uh, of what we see here on this cover, Katie? Sure. You know, while I find this cover to be very terrifying, um, it's also a little bit humorous as well. <laughs> um, we have two teens that are set against the backdrop of an eerie forest after dark. They seem to be coming face to face with a silhouette of what appears to be like a tall cloaked figure, some kind of dementor perhaps. Um, mm. I found the way that they are posed um, a bit unnatural <laughs> for a terrifying encounter. Um, <laughs> I think the attention was for it to be like an I'm so scared pose. Um, but to me, it kind of looks like um, when you had like sock hops in elementary school, did you ever play that game where everybody's dancing and then they cut the music and you're supposed to freeze in the middle of your dance move? <laughs> uh, no, I can't say that we did, but it did remind me of sort of uh, playing freeze tag. Yeah. Um, like you're, you're, somebody calls stop and you just have to, whatever weird pose you're in, you're just stuck forever now. Exactly. So we have um, our 
leading lady, Kara. She's doing Bob Fosse jazz hands. And <laughs> <laughs> she's wearing sort of a um, sweater and skirt combo. She looks a bit like Nancy Drew uh, in mm. this mm-hmm. depiction. So I think she looks really cute. She's standing next to her brother, Mark, who looks like he's <laughs> doing kind of like a stop in the name of love pose. <laughs> <laughs> he looks like he's he's just stepped out of that um that aha music video. <laughs> yeah. Like he he is the drawing about to come to life. It's just not much of a life. Yeah, that's so accurate. Um I thought it was funny that he is wearing like Adidas sneakers. So he's like definitely dressed for action um whereas his sister is just wearing like some mary jeans so she'll probably Mm. run a little bit slower and he's wearing a leather jacket over a graphic tee to me it looks like maybe like a summer camp souvenir t-shirt or Mm. maybe like a margaritaville t-shirt all around super stylish they seem like great dancers So, yeah, I feel like this cover is quite striking, but in a very sort of weird and almost surreal way, because it's you're right, it's definitely supposed to be the Fear Street Woods, except it has kind of more of a blank void type vibe to it, like kind of like your parents' empty basement vibe, where just for some reason there's a fog machine going and some random tree limbs. (laughs) The tree limbs don't seem like connected to anything. There's only one of them that vaguely looks like it goes like into the ground as like the trunk of a tree. Yeah. And so it gives me the the impression that maybe what um, Mark and Kara, our leads, are trying to do is they're trying to like blend in and um, seem like they themselves are some of these uh, <laughs> random tree limbs. The shadow that is looming over them is also quite weird because you're, you're right. It does. I, I imagine it's supposed to be like a hooded cloaked figure, which we do get a little bit of in this book but it also is just a little too vague so it kind of just looks like a giant pen tip that's floating above them about to like scribble them out like (laughs) oh no i made a mistake with these drawings time to do it again yeah the um the shadows are interesting because that's the only thing that has a shadow like mark and kara don't have (laughs) shadows the trees don't have shadows exactly oh i mean it leaves such a ghostly impression not realistic surreal but cool and striking. Yeah, good cover. <laughs> so I want to talk to you about the cover artist for this one. Uh, on the copyright page, the cover artist is simply credited as Gabrielle. Uh, nothing else, just says cover, copyright, Gabrielle. I, I looked this uh, artist up and found out it's it's not a woman. It is, in fact, a man named Gabriel uh, Picar. Oh. Gabriel Picar is a Spanish artist um, from Barcelona. He still lives in Barcelona, still works there. Um, He became involved with the publishing world and specifically the Fear Street series because he had formed a studio or he had joined an already existing studio, really, of like two other artists in the 80s with Enric Torres, who is the person who did the first three Fear Street covers, those really iconic ones. And um, Enric Torres is responsible for like a lot of other really cool paperback cover art. And um, yeah, uh, uh, Gabriel Picard joined them and did a whole bunch of work for uh, Bantam and Dell and Pocketbook Scholastic around this period, including three Fear Street covers. So uh, basically, Enric did the first three, and then the second three were done by this artist. He did uh, Missing, Wrong Number, one of the most iconic covers in the entire series, and The Sleepwalker. After that, Bill Schmidt 
moved in, and he was the one who did most of the covers after that. Gabriel Picard also did a number of other like series books that we may recognize, like uh, the Girl Talk middle grade series. He did a bunch for them. Uh, funnily enough, he did do a number of covers for the Nancy Drew Files, oh. um, the 80s uh, uh, pocket series. Um, and I think that, yeah, Kara on the cover of this very much looks like what he sort of drew as Nancy Drew. He did Choose Your Own Adventures, a whole bunch of stuff. Um, uh, some of them quite good. I, I went on his website and, and just did a little bit of research on like the stuff he's up to now. And he does a lot of more fine art pieces today. And they're gorgeous. Um, he's a very talented artist. And a lot of his work for these sort of like middle grade and teen covers is quite good, too. I think that this one maybe misses the mark so lightly in some regards, but it's still a pretty cool cover, um, at least in terms of communicating a certain mood to us. Yeah, and you know, the color palette is very beautiful, so I can see that he has a really refined aesthetic. Mm, for sure. Okay. So we need to get into talking about these various characters and give you a sense of the the plot that they wind up in. And oh boy, is it ever a plot. So I'm going to introduce you to the various characters we meet here, which I think is kind of a little bit unique for Fear Street generally in that, although at least in the beginning, there's a lot of teen characters. In fact, there are some crossover characters from uh, earlier Fear Street books um, who we recognize. They pretty much disappear after that point. Um, they pop, a couple of them pop up here and there very, very briefly and non-significantly. But we have a lot of adult characters in this book, a surprising number for your, your typical Fear Street. But we do, of course, we're, we're centered around a, a teen pair, uh, brother and sister, Kara and Mark Burroughs. These, this pair recently moved to Shadyside and have a house on Fear Street. And of course, uh, naturally, everybody is really surprised when they learn that they live on Fear Street. Although the kids at Shadyside High are not afraid to like go hang out and party at their place, um, <laughs> even though they maybe should. Parties on Fear Street usually don't go well. Uh, this one goes fine, but it could have gone wrong. <laughs> Kara is our first one, and she's the one who's... Um, well, actually, another thing that's interesting about this book is that it switches between perspectives. Uh, Kara and Mark have um, point of view chapters that kind of move back and forth depending upon what part of the action we need to see. Um, we start with Kara, and unfortunately, Kara does not exactly have a wealth of personality. Um, she kind of largely plays second fiddle to Mark in this book. The only thing we really know about her is that she's kind of weirdly preoccupied with her brother's love life and his cute <laughs> dimples. She has made some friends at school, and she's got one guy interested in her, which we learn about later. But none of this really comes to anything once the plot takes over. So so Kara's just kind of there as an additional piece. What, what can you say about Kara? I think she was described as being more cynical than her brother. Like maybe she has more of like a dark side, whereas her brother is like kind of a jock and he's really <laughs> friendly and everybody is drawn to him. So maybe she's kind of like the Daria to his Quinn Morkendorfer. <laughs> you know what? That is absolutely perfect. Yeah. I mean, granted, she doesn't exactly do much. She's not really a part of anything except for like her uh, somewhat like quasi wry commentary on the events. I'm thinking of a moment in particular that reminds me of this. This is on page four of the book. It's when she describes uh, Mark and her parents having a, a heated conversation at the breakfast table. And Mark gets so mad that his parents are denying him from seeing his uh, at the time girlfriend that he picks up his Pop-Tart 
is oozing Pop-Tart <laughs> off his plate. He's about to throw it against the wall in frustration. And Kara's narration says, I pictured it hitting the wall with a splat. I'm really bad. <laughs> right? So that's so that's the amount of her cynicism. Yeah. <laughs> Real cynical. So that's Kara. And our other point of view character here is Mark, her brother, uh, who, who Kara does describe wonderfully. Uh, she says pretty early on that with Mark, quote, what you see is what you get. <laughs> and what you see is broad shoulders, a thick neck and wavy blonde hair. Um, he is kind of dim. He's not super bright. He has some real anger issues that he relieves by either again throwing Pop-Tarts or coming real close or silently and angrily performing archery in the backyard <laughs> he is a bit of an archery freak we learn it's true um in fact he's described as both an archery freak and a star trek freak yes um. <laughs> he lo- loves star trek and star trek novels too he reads them all he doesn't read anything else but he'll read those. <laughs> he also doesn't have much of a sense of humor. Um, when uh, uh, Kara is telling us about his love of Star Trek, she notes that like one of his favorite activities is to, without anybody else seeing, he will flash her the Vulcan salute and then just like <laughs> go into hysterics. He thinks it's so funny. <laughs> Maybe it's funny. I've never seen Star Trek. Is that funny? No. The Vulcan salute <laughs> is the hand symbol oh, where I've you go that. like this. Yeah. yeah, You've seen that. It's not funny. No, it's not. <laughs> So then there's their parents, Mr. and Mrs. Burroughs, who are the missing people of the title. We don't see them for much of the book because they're missing pretty much from the start. They are computer mainframe installers, whatever that exactly means. Uh, it seems to take them a while. I've Granted, these are early 90s computers that we're talking about here, so I imagine they take a little while to set up. But this means that they did take jobs all around the country, uh, helping various businesses install these mainframes. And this is why the family is always moving around. Currently, they're working for a place called Cranford Industries, which I think is in Waynesbridge. That the sort of uh, uh, proto Sunnyvale, yeah. or at least it's it's like past Waynesbridge, somewhere in that area. They, so we don't. I don't want to spoil yet what exactly is really going on with them or who they are. But I will say one thing about them that we learn just from observing Kara and Mark is that they have clearly taught their children no life skills whatsoever. <laughs> um, they are so busy working that their poor, helpless children cannot do anything on their own. So bad parenting, once again, always a hallmark of these sort of books. Yep, I totally agree with that. They kind of justify that by saying that their parents are young and uh, very cool. They have a lot of clubs that they go to and um, that's why they're not immediately alarmed when their parents don't come home because they're like, oh, well, they've got these really active social lives. Sometimes they just don't come home. That's true. There are some like other details later on that Mark and Kara just casually relate that makes us think that like maybe Mr. and Mrs. Burroughs are kind of freaks. Like they, they might have like this very interesting social life. But we'll get into that, I think, later on. Yeah. Another important character here is Mark's um uh hot and heavy and then also kind of missing girlfriend <laughs> Gina or Jenna what are we going with here uh i said Gina um because it you know sounds more exotic <laughs> mm, there you go yeah so it's a little confusing cuz it's G E N A 
So it could it could be Jenna, but I think it's Gina too. Uh, sexy Gina Rawlings. Uh, she is described immediately as hot to trot. Uh, Kara says she is short, but with a great bod, creamy white skin. All the guys at school think she's really sexy. And she is. Yeah, Kara, Kara's got some issues here comparing herself to uh, sexy Gina Rawlings. Yeah, I think Kara's, Kara's like slightly into every character. <laughs> yeah yeah that's a good way yeah she's just anybody really yeah. so uh gina we we don't know too much about her other than she's just really hot hot um until a little bit later on in the plot so we'll, we'll keep it there but she is the sort of girl who gives you kisses that could get you arrested in some states uh so you know bad influence here she does also have a father who we meet a little bit later on who is described as a very big sweaty man uh he is dr rawlings he catches mark sneaking in through her bedroom window at one point and for some reason he doesn't shoot mark despite the fact that he's holding a hand a gun in his hands a surprising moment of restraint from uh jovial dr rawlings <laughs> dr rawlings will be important for later on too the other important character within the Burroughs household is Roger, who is a creeper, an addict dweller, a, an alleged college student, a distant cousin who no one has ever heard of before, <laughs> uh, but who Mr. and Mrs. Burroughs allow to reside in their new home. Um, he can often be found lurking behind curtains with his toes sticking out, and he keeps a gun in his underwear drawer. And no, that's none of your business. <laughs> He's got a, he's very uh, secretive for a boring college student. He's extremely secretive and also like very boring. Yeah. Which kind of makes sense when we learn more about him later. Um, but yeah, he's just, he, he, he almost expresses no emotion other than sweat. Um, <laughs> if sweat could be described as an emotion. Uh, there's this one moment where he's just like heavily sweating while trying to remain very cool. And I think Kara says, or thinks to herself, wow, I mean, it's hot in my parents' bedroom, but not that hot. Perpetually nervous. But I will also note that Kara thinks that he looks just like a model in a magazine, but she doesn't think he has any idea how good looking he is. Yeah, that, I did find that to be a really interesting detail because like he acts like such a like a an attic dwelling creeper and yet he's somehow like as hot as <laughs> uh as hot as Tom Cruise who yeah. is maybe the hottest person on the planet at this point. And he's also, you know, her cousin, so that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that that doesn't really seem to stop Kara's interest. We also learn of Dr. Murdoch, who is a bearded and mysterious van driver who's lurking outside of the Burroughs household. Roger claims that he doesn't know him and then claims that he's his possible professor. Very likely something else. Hmm mysterious there's also another adult because there's so many adults there's captain faraday who is an overly helpful and reassuring police captain who assists mark and kara and also drives a car with no visible police ids hmm wonder about this guy <laughs> and uh lastly uh mr marcus the slick owner of cranford industries who mark and kara eventually go to meet to try to find out hey did our parents just like sleep over at work last night <laughs> he's got kind of a slime ball patrick bateman gordon gecko vibe kind of related to this do we even know what cranford industries does uh 
hard to say. <laughs> <laughs> Just one of those generic industries. <laughs> general, general industry. Lots of <laughs> industrial doing, actions. They're doing industrious things over there at Cranford. <laughs> <laughs> got it. Got it. All right. So let's go into the plot now that we have all of our characters set up here. Tell us, Katie, what happens in Missing? <laughs> Okay, so our book begins with Mark and Kara home alone. Again, their parents are apparently working late, but Mark and Kara aren't too worried because, you know, this happens sometimes. Their parents are very committed to their work and they have all these social engagements. So, you know, they decide to take advantage of the situation and have some friends over. Mark and his girlfriend, Gina, spend most of the party, you know, getting to know each other on the couch. <laughs> Uh, by that you mean she is in his lap and they are they are lost to the world engaged in their rigorous match of tonsil <laughs> hockey yeah yeah and everyone's just having a great time until a policeman shows up at the house so Carrie's worried because she thinks that he's there to say something bad's happened to their parents but no he's just there to investigate some burglaries in the neighborhood we find out this gentleman's name is Captain Faraday. He leaves his card and then moves on and eventually the party fizzles out. So Mark and Kara realize that their phone is actually dead and so that's probably why their parents haven't called to say that they'd be late. They decide to just check their parents room one more time and things seem a little bit off. For one thing their parents bed is unmade which never happens and then for a second thing they notice that pair of little mysterious footsies <laughs> sticking out from behind a curtain. But not to worry, not to worry. It's just their distant cousin, Roger. He was also just there looking for their parents. I like to imagine that, uh, that like he was wearing big clown shoes that just <laughs> couldn't help but stick out from behind the curtains. Yeah. So once Roger leaves, they find one more creepy clue, and that is a small white monkey skull with rhinestone eyes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's nothing more menacing than that, right? <laughs> yeah, I really want to take a trip to Michael's and recreate um, <laughs> this and have it in my wow. office with me. Yes. Um, so their parents still aren't home the next day. So Mark and Kara are like totally freaked out by this point. They decide to go to a neighbor's house to try to call their office, but they don't have any luck. And they even decide to skip school and drive to Cranford Industries, but no one there seems to have ever even heard of their parents. They're not in any employee records or anything. So they're like, what's going on? Are our parents lying about where they were working? Like, we actually have no way to find them now. <laughs> so Kara remembers that she has that card from Captain Faraday, and they decide it's finally time to get the police involved. But Captain Faraday says, you know, nothing to worry about. There have been no crimes reported, no accidents reported. So it doesn't seem like anything bad has happened. There's probably a logical explanation. <laughs> Listen, kids, sometimes parents go on a bender. They'll be back. <laughs> a little worse for wear, but they'll be back. Exactly. <laughs> so a couple of odd things are going on with their cousin, Roger. Mark sees him sneak out in the middle of the night and enter this gray van. And he sees this a couple of times. And as you mentioned, they also found a pistol in his desk, which is a <laughs> suspicious thing to have for a normal college student in this small town. Specifically, it's in his underwear drawer, correct? Yeah. Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah, yeah. Just <laughs> guess, a, a good detail. I guess good that's detail. 
um, a secret place to keep it. <laughs> so Mark and Kira kind of decide to pursue him as like a possible suspect or a possible lead. Maybe he knows more information than he's letting on. So Kara goes out one night following Roger. He ends up meeting with that older gentleman that he says is his professor, but Kara is a little bit suspicious. And while she's out doing her sleuthing, Mark finds an important clue of his own. He's crossing through Fear Street Woods one night to go to his girlfriend's house, who lives just on the other side of the woods. And there he finds a small white monkey skull. With rhinestone eyes, just like the one he found in his parents' bedroom. <laughs> a true calling card. Yeah. I mean, it sends shivers down my spine. I'm, I've got goosebumps. <laughs> we, we actually, the first time we have the um, little rhinestone inlaid monkey skull described to us, uh, uh, Mark feels it in his hand and it's radiating evil. Yeah. Which I didn't know little monkey skulls could do. Yeah. Also, this is a question. Is it a real monkey skull or is it like a fake Michael's monkey skull? That is a good question. I like to think that it's fake from Michael's, but I don't know if you can make a Michael's skull evil. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, to radiate evil, like that would be impressive. But then my bigger question is going to be, once we find out a little bit more, where are they getting these monkey skulls? <laughs> it's it's not, not a, a, a happy thought. <laughs> Since there's still no word from Captain Faraday about their parents, Mark and Kara try to pursue one more lead. They remember that their parents have a friend from work, Wally, uh, that they've met <laughs> once or twice. <laughs> So uh, they decide to contact him and see where he knows where their parents might be, even though the CEO of Cranford Industries himself says that they don't even work there. But this guy, Wally, confirms that their parents do, in fact, work there. You know, he hasn't seen them for a few days because he's had this different assignment. But at least now we know that the Cranford Industries CEO is the one who was lying. But why? (laughs) <laughs> so I didn't mention Wally in our character roundup because he's he's kind of inconsequential besides supplying like this little clue. Yeah. Like he doesn't show up after this or anything. He's just some wacky co-worker. Yeah. But he gives off like a real um, like Robin Williams vibe or something. Yeah, I like that. I, I could see that. He seems like he would be a good guy to have on your bowling team. For sure. Him and his wife, too. His wife, who's described as wearing a Grateful Dead t-shirt. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they seem like a fun... I mean, we get a sense, again, of the social life that uh, uh, allegedly <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Burroughs have. And it seems fun. Yeah, they're they're fun people. So... They get home uh, from visiting Wally, and they see that Roger's light is on. So they go up to talk to him, only to find their poor, distant cousin dead at his desk. He'd been shot with a bow and arrow. Oh, no. Still, still, Still very handsome in death, though. It's true. But... The only archery freak we know is Mark, so who could have done this? (laughs) Yeah, you have to be an archery freak to even pick up a bow. It's true. (laughs) So as if that shock wasn't enough, they realize that someone else is in the attic with them. It's Captain Faraday. He was coincidentally just right there on the scene to discover (laughs) Roger's body. He says that he has already called for backup and his guys are on the way, not to worry. But as soon as he says this, this statement kind of makes the hairs on Mark's neck stand up. Because if you'll recall, 
Their phone has been out for a few days. So how did he call his guys? So Mark and Kara are hip to this guy's game. They don't know exactly what's going on, but they know that he's a liar and that they could be in danger. So they try to escape, but Captain Faraday is too fast for them. He's actually about to shoot Mark and Kara, and it's this really intense moment. But suddenly they hear, drop the gun. Is it the real police? No. It's... (laughs) Mark's girlfriend, Gina, here to save the day. <laughs> so they're able to tie up Faraday, the three of them. And Gina says that she knows where their parents are and she can take them there, but they have to hurry. So she leads them deep into Fear Street Woods, but not before equipping them with some long hooded robes for some reason. <laughs> Gina's the only person in this book who knows anything that's going on, including the reader at this point. <laughs> yep. So the teens sneak up on a group of hooded figures that are carrying candles. And through Gina, we learn that this is a cult called the White Monkey Brotherhood. And her dad is one of the members, (laughs) Dr. Rawlings. You know, he got involved in this cult and then the ideologies just got really out of hand. (laughs) Like he really believed in their message at first and then went off the rails. (laughs) Yeah, so through their fireside chanting and these proclamations, we do learn like a little bit more about the cult's mission statement. But like most cults, it's a bit skimpy on the specifics. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of like a politically motivated extremist faction. They say they want to take back their community and their nation from the criminal element by force. Yeah, this is like a neighborhood watch that's gone really out of control. Yeah, they... They're like, down with the courts, down with the weak-willed police. Yes, to the brotherhood, they shout. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, this is such a terrifying and confusing scene for them. But uh, Mark and Kara notice that two of the figures are wearing white monkey masks. And immediately, they can recognize them as their mom and dad, the leaders of the cult. (laughs) But no, don't worry. Their parents aren't the leaders of the cult. They're actually just about to be murdered by the cult. Yeah, I mean, clearly this cult kills monkeys. So a monkey mask (laughs) equals monkey death. Exactly. They do not love monkeys. They do not love murderous traitors. And apparently they've discovered that Mark and Kara's parents are traitors to the White Monkey Brotherhood. And to their horror, they're about to witness their parents being killed. They're going to have their heads chopped off. Again, much like those monkeys. Our second book in a row where there is the threat of decapitation. (laughs) (laughs) So Mark goes for a Hail Mary and he chucks the white monkey skull at uh, one of the cult members. And this provides the distraction that their parents need to wrangle free and exclaim, FBI, you're all under arrest. (laughs) Okay, so I know we're all on the edge of our seats here. Um, (laughs) So I'll take a minute to explain what in the world is going on. Um, <laughs> so it turns out Mark and Kara's parents don't, in fact, install mainframe computers. They do love computers, though. They make sure to say that, though. Yeah. I mean, they're so young and cool. <laughs> no Luddites here. <laughs> they're actually FBI agents. 
And their mission has been to like infiltrate cults all across America. <laughs> we are a country rife with cults. So they've got their work cut out for them. <laughs> and they learned that other people that we've met aren't who they seem. Roger isn't their cousin. He was another FBI agent who was supposed to protect their family. And Captain Faraday isn't a police officer. He was a bent cop arrested by their parents on racketeering charges. <laughs> so the cult assignment must be a rather new assignment. Yeah. If they've got like, you know, they're like the grizzled uh, FBI agents who have put so many people away that they're now getting out of jail yeah. and are coming after them. So they've had quite the career for a fairly young and hip couple. <laughs> And of course, we learned that the CEO of Cranford Industries isn't a real CEO. He was the leader of the White Monkey Brotherhood. So now that their cover is blown, the family has to move on to a new town. But Mark gets one last chance to say goodbye to his girlfriend, Gina. And as she leaves, she passes him a note that says, Can you keep a secret? I love you, Gina. <laughs> Uh, important detail here is that this this note is is in the hollowed out eye of a monkey skull oh, yeah. um, um, because we too, can't let that go too soon in my in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> so that is a whirlwind plot for a whirlwind book. Wow, <laughs> I feel like I've gone missing or something. Something in my in my my hollowed out brain cavity has gone missing. Yeah, we started out as. A normal family with some computer specialist parents and we ended up with cults and bent cops and a lot of sabotage and intrigue ultimately i cannot believe that this book was published in 1990 because it feels like it was published in 2021 <laughs> So for our first segment, um, we call it Blood and Lace. That's where we do some fashion commentary. Um, there aren't a ton of outfits in this book, um, which is unfortunate for a Fear Street book. But yeah. um, one, a couple of things that I noted that were cute. Um, on page 12, when Kara is trying to kick some partygoers out of her house, she says like hey guys and she holds up her wrist and gives a subtle hint taking a long look at her swatch and i was like oh i remember swatches i had a pink swatch with giraffes on it <laughs> i mean taking a long look at your swatch is the universal subtle hint for get out of my house i need to brood over how how cute my brother is yeah um so i liked that because he could have just said watch he didn't have to say swatch but you know, it's little things like that that um, make me appreciate R.L. Stein. <laughs> <laughs> Were swatches still cool in 1990? Yeah, because I didn't even get my swatch till probably like 1993 or four. Oh wow! Okay, so he so... was he was really hipping <laughs> with it then. Yeah. That's... Good job, Bob. Um, mine also glue in the dark. Um, oh wow. <laughs> That would be really helpful if you're lost in the Fear Street woods. <laughs> Maybe I'll look for one on eBay. 
So um, another cute outfit was when they go to Cranford Industries, there's a very fashionable secretary that works there. Mm, um, yeah. She had her hair like pulled back in a bun and she was wearing a great looking plum colored suit with matching tie. I was like, oh, that's oh, wow. really cute. I would love yeah. a plum colored suit and tie. I love that. That's <laughs> so good. I'm gonna, I'm, that will be my outfit for tomorrow. I'm going to make it happen. <laughs> Yeah. Did you have any fashion commentary you wanted to add? So I did, uh, because the only thing that really stuck out to me um, at the very near the very end of this book was the outfits of the Brotherhood of the White Monkey. Uh, they have these long monks' robes, which are described in not too flattering fashion. Uh, they. <laughs> Um, musty. They have been stored in the basement of uh, Dr. Rawlings' house. And um, yeah, they're pretty gross. And I think the biggest problem is that they are all very uniform. Nobody really sticks out in their brotherhood cult outfit. So my question for you is, as a member of the brotherhood, how can one best accessorize a sweaty gym locker room smelling monk's robe? <laughs> To give a little bit of flair, you know, individuality. Um, that's a great point. So I guess we can assume that these are long, long robes, like ground length robes. Um, it For might sure. be cute yeah. if each of them were like different color tights. So like as they were like walking oh. around the fire, you might just get like a glimpse of like purple oh. tights, red tights. Oh, um, that. Yeah, a little swish of the uh, of the bottom uh, the bottom half, and uh, there a pop of color. Yeah. I like it. Yeah, I think a pop of color would be cool. Um, similarly, maybe you could uh, sew like a cool lining on the inside of the hood or inside Ooh. of the sleeves, like some kind of satin satin pattern, like a paisley. Mm. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I mean, to me, if I were in a cult. I think about this a lot, actually, because um, I feel like I would be very cult prone, unfortunately. But I would never join one where you had to wear like these just like musty brown uh, hooded cloaks. That's that's not something that I would be into. That wouldn't be the cult for me. <laughs> so we really need to uh, study the fashion catalogs and find the best trends and the most flattering fits yeah. to lure you in. Yeah, like think about the Manson family. Um, you could just wear like beautiful, like long bohemian dresses. I think that would be like such a great cult to join just for the fashion, not for the actual <laughs> purposes of the, uh, the cult. <laughs> Lovely. So our next segment is Bad Moonlight. In this segment, we, we hope to look at all of the goofiest moments in a given novel. Because one thing you know, if you read any number of these teen horror books, is that they've got a lot of goofy moments. And oh boy, do we have some goofy moments in Missing. <laughs> so I want to walk you through a few of them here. We've covered a, a number of them already, but that's all right, because guess what? This one's got a lot. Uh, I'm going to start fairly early into the book. This comes not too long after 
the party has wrapped up at the the very beginning. We begin with this party where there's a lot of uh, kissing and uh, <laughs> and uh, a little bit of practical joke humor that occurs too. One of the party attendees, in fact, I believe it is Corey. Yeah, I think it's Corey. Corey is is Corey. Corey Brooks is the character from the very first Fear Street, right? Yep. From New Girl. He's from the New Girl, yeah. Um, he has the great uh, idea, along with his friend David, who I believe is also in the New Girl, to uh, pretend to vomit by throwing some prank plastic, like <laughs> rubber vomit, um, on the ground or on the table or something. So that happens earlier in the party. And then as the party is wrapping up, Kara here, who is narrating, says at the bottom of page 11, I noticed a big wet stain on the edge of the carpet. This one was real, not rubber. <laughs> oh, well, it's good for the carpet, I muttered to myself. I want to know, like, in what universe anything being dropped onto the carpet, whether it be vomit or, like, I, I mean, they're not drinking beer here. So, like, Coca-Cola or anything on the carpet is good for the carpet. Does she think that the carpet is like an organism that like needs liquids to <laughs> grow? <laughs> oh, the carpet's going to sprout now, my little seedlings. No, like what is wrong with her that she thinks this is okay? This is like evidence piece number one for why these kids just don't understand how the world works or how anything works. Yeah. Very bad, very bad. So my next moment here in this section is actually not too far on from this. And it's one of the, the first things that we hear, kind of the, the rumors or stories about the Fear Street Woods. So throughout the Fear Street books, we have a number of different things told to us about the Fear Street Woods and what we can expect if we go and spend any significant time in it. And it's never good. You never want to be in the Fear Street Woods. But I feel like the things we, we, we hear about here are kind of unique and not things that ever pop up again. Um, which I guess is what happens when you have like a creepy woods that everybody has rumors about. Um, but one of these rumors is uh, on page 15. Somebody is saying, what if the car stalled on Fear Street back in the woods and they're lost in the woods? You know those stories about how people go into the woods and come out looking different and not remembering <laughs> who they are. Oh, no. So basically, if you go into the Fear Street Woods, you will get a facelift uh, and also some electroshock therapy, I guess, <laughs> to forget who you are. Um, it's, it's a nice way to like, if you want to start over, just go to the Fear Street Woods and you will come out uh, entirely different. Yeah, I, I want to know more about that story. I wish that we had more information because that's the first that I am hearing about this amnesia. Maybe it's like a, yeah. like a fog that exists in the woods that kind of like wipes people's memories. Well, the the cover of this book tells us there's a lot of fog <laughs> in the Fear Street Woods, for sure. Similarly, along these uh, um, same lines, we do have that story much later on in the book about how, and this is on page 89, how uh, this is a much longer story. Like, that's just a brief insinuation of a tale that one has heard. But on page 89, we have one of the two remembering a long story told by a guy named Arnie Tobin. I don't know if this is a, a Fear Street character or not. I'd have to look him up to find out. Um, this is a long story about some campers who went into the woods and <laughs> heard some sounds and saw a kind of monster that had attacked their camp. Um, none of them could really describe it. They said it looked like a guinea pig or a white rat, only a hundred times bigger. They said it was bigger than a full-grown horse. Uh, it goes on to uh, <laughs> gnaw to bits both their tent 
and a number of the unopened cans of beans that they'd brought with them on their camping trip. I love that they just brought beans on their camping trip. <laughs> That's it. We're just going to survive. We're going to really rough it. So yeah, again, very like Ghosts of Fear Street, Goosebumps-esque um, descriptions of what is actually going on in the Fear Street woods. I feel like in later volumes... What happens there will be a little bit more sophisticated and like scary, but here it's more just like goofy, almost horror comedy esque. So I have a really good moment that comes also fairly early once the the kids have realized that their parents have gone missing. This is on page. <laughs> this is on page nineteen. Actually, let's 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 go to the very bottom of page eighteen first because they're they're trying to figure out what's going on. They're talking a little bit about Roger, who is this distant cousin of my mother's, uh, who's boarding with them. At the bottom of page eighteen, they're relating. I don't really know why mom and dad took him in. It can't be for the rent he pays. We really don't need the money. Strangely enough, he isn't the first boarder we've had. Other young guys have boarded with us in other towns we've lived in. I guess mom and dad just like to help college students out. Okay, so like, when we don't understand that they are FBI agents working with younger agents who sometimes board with them, um, this sounds like mom and dad are like, <laughs> they're getting kind of freaky. Um, they're uh, inviting young men to live in their house for any uh, number of extracurricular <laughs> activities. Um <laughs> It's, uh, and again, like the fact that the brains of Mark and Kara don't even go there, they just accept it blindly, says a lot about them. Yeah, I mean, their cover story is a little bit flimsy, just saying, oh yeah, he's a distant cousin. Like, how many distant cousins do they have every single town you move to? <laughs> it's just, oh yeah, he's another distant cousin living with us. Good for them. <laughs> I think the thing I really want to get across from all of these bad moonlight moments is that Mark and Kara are not incredibly bright. Again, I think that Mark is definitely a little bit dimmer, but Kara is not, she's not scoring many points here either. We do have some, I think, pretty beautiful moments of writing describing uh, the, <laughs> the, let's say, the um, intellectual situations of a character like Mark. One of these comes on page 39. Like, this is legitimately, I think, a great piece of writing that tells you everything you need to know about this character. It's a moment where Mark is confused. Surprise. And he says here, And I sure had a lot of questions now, but it was too late. The questions all swirled around in my head like clothes in a washing machine. Heavy, heavy clothes. I... <laughs> I love the idea of Mark's head just being like the, <laughs> this, uh, most of the time, empty washing machine. <laughs> but when you fill it with with clothes that you're washing, it's just too much. It's and too he's much. like churning around. <laughs> he's moving. He's trying to get them clean. But it's just, it's hard for him. Yeah. It's a real effort. <laughs> Poor guy. It's too full with clothes. <laughs> You, I can just hear it like shuddering, like it's it's filling up the entire house with the sound of it struggling to clean. Well, what better reinforcement of this than just two pages later on page 41, where Mark and Kara, having to deal with their parents being gone and absent missing for about, I don't know, 12 hours, are immediately running into the problem of, what do we eat? <laughs> Uh, so on page 41, what they decide to eat for breakfast is the following. Kara slumped down the stairs and I followed her into the kitchen. We were both feeling pretty miserable. 
She found a box of cornflakes in the cabinet, but there was no milk. So we poured a bottle of Coke on it instead. <laughs> Every day should start with a balanced breakfast, Kara muttered. Actually, it didn't taste that bad. <laughs> I am immensely concerned for the well-being of these children at this point. This is, you know, within 12 hours of being left to their own devices. <laughs> this is what they're resorting to. <laughs> it's desperate. Um, later on, we learn that they um, also discover a, a mostly devoured stale loaf of bread and they're like, oh, you know what? We can get like two sandwiches out of this if we really stretch it. <laughs> By like the very end of the book, when they go out to the Shady Side Mall for a piece of pizza, I feel like I'm happy that they've gotten yeah. a little bit of nutrients. It's not much, but it's something. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about about these two. I think they need a little bit more time in the oven to cook <laughs> before they're out in the real world. <laughs> <laughs> oh these poor darlings okay <laughs> another moment that i found very funny uh comes on page 82 and it is after mark and kara discover the gun in the underwear drawer of roger this hunky young distant cousin of theirs uh, he explains where this gun came from because of course they're very concerned so he wants to assuage their those concerns <laughs> he says it so happens that that pistol means a lot to me it belonged to my dad he was a policeman he gave it to me on my 18th birthday he told me i should always keep it nearby he said i hoped i never had to use it but he wanted me to have it anyway a few weeks later he was shot <laughs> dead in a drug raid the pistol is about the only thing I have left from my dad. So it seems like dad really shouldn't have given him his gun. He maybe could have used it. Yeah, maybe give it to him when you retire or something, but not when you're still active on these really dangerous missions. <laughs> oh, it's so tragic. I mean, it helps to know that it's probably a false story. But even in terms of false stories, it's 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 not the the most <laughs> clever or convincing. <laughs> Oh, boy. Another moment that comes uh, a little bit later on. This is on page 99. It's a, This is a book full of small moments where I think Bob tries to convince us of how hippie and cool he is. <laughs> One of these comes on this page. It's the very beginning of chapter 19, where Mark describes himself. He describes uh, his heart. Uh, which is pounding like the drums on a Def Leppard record. <laughs> <laughs> Just a tiny moment again to let you, let you know. R.L. Stein loves Def Leppard. He knows. He knows music. <laughs> he's heard it. Which is funny because in, I feel like in a lot of later books, he's very vague about music. Whenever he describes it, it sounds like, yeah, we're at a sock hop in the 1950s. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but here he's like, no, no, no. I've heard the name Def Leppard. I know. Yeah. That they have drums. <laughs> he probably asked his son, Matt Stein, like, hey, Matt, what's like a cool band the kids are listening to these <laughs> days? <laughs> definitely, definitely. So the next moment is, it's tricky because it is, I think, a bad moonlight moment because it was, it made my jaw drop. But not in the way that, that these things usually do. Usually it's goofy moments. Usually it's silly stuff or, you know, these uh, pop cultural references. Uh, but this moment is straight up, like, upsetting. 
Uh, it's something we didn't mention in the uh, plot roundup because ultimately it is kind of inconsequential, but it leaves a lasting impression. There is one moment where Mark is traveling across the Fear Street woods and he, he falls into a big hole. And he falls into this big hole alongside a dog that has pushed him into this hole. He describes it first as a beast, and I think we imagine that it's supposed to be that giant guinea pig. But it is, in fact, a dog that seemingly was just left to, like, starve, um, tied up nearby this hole. I guess is like a very rudimentary security system. And this starving dog attacks Mark in the bottom of this hole, which is not deep enough that Mark can't climb out of it because he does immediately climb out of it uh, once he's done dealing with the problem, which is this dog, which he wrestles, he fights off, and then out of desperation, snaps the neck of. Put an entry for this book on the doesthedogdie.com because the dog dies. And I don't even want to read it because it's honestly upsetting that when he wrestles this dog and then like puts all this pressure as he's trying to like, you know, on its neck, trying to to sort of subdue it, it cracks. And then the dog just like stares at him in sort of this like dumbfounded uh, 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 surprise at what's happened and just falls down dead. And like the light goes from its eyes. It's like tragic. It's so intense. And Mark just goes home in the middle of the night. We don't even get his, like, arrival at home and, like, him breaking down in front of Kara. It's just, like, they wake up the next morning, pour themselves a bowl of uh, cornflakes and Coke, and just move on with their day. Like, this is a traumatic experience, and, like, way more than I was expecting in this book. Um, how did you feel about this moment? It was too sad. That's why I didn't include it in the description. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, you know, I think it was sort of like this guard dog for the cult, um, to for people to stay away from like the cult's territory or something, um, right? But I just, you know, it, it happens a lot in Fear Street books, unfortunately, where there's like an animal who is like the victim of some crime, and I that's my least favorite thing about Fear Street books. Um, it's unnecessary. Just leave the dog alone. He's a good boy. <laughs> For sure. I mean, I feel like it does pop up a lot. Um, cats are a frequent uh, victim uh, <laughs> of shady side teenager uh, delinquent behavior. I guess I was just surprised by like how gruesome this was. Yeah. It was like so tactile, the description of him breaking the neck of this dog. I mean, it was so sad. I mean, this was not clearly like a evil dog. This was like a poor, sad dog that had just been tied up in the middle of the woods and left to sort of fend for itself. Um, it's really tragic. And the fact that there's just no fallout from it, um, like, again, I think it was a well-written scene. It really affected me. Um, but just that there's nothing, like, they don't even think about it afterwards, really. I think Mark maybe mentions it briefly, and then they move on. It's, uh, I don't know. It felt weird to me. I would have rather it had been the giant guinea pig creature. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, it would be so much better if this just if, if it was just a giant guinea pig and there was no explanation <laughs> for it at all. Um, yeah, that would be great. <laughs> okay, so on to less serious matters. On page one thirteen, we have a description of uh sexy gina's room <laughs> and oh boy do we ever get a great description so 
this is again when Mark has, after he's just murdered a dog and crossed the woods to the Rawlings house, he's uh, somehow made his way up a trellis. Uh, he's fallen off of the trellis, I think, and, and scratched himself. So he's bleeding openly. He also takes, this, I didn't mark this down, but he takes like a thigh high or like a quite high sock and like wraps it around his uh, his arm to stop the bleeding. And he's like, Gina won't miss this. It's like, well, she might. Okay, but all right, whatever. He's bleeding out, but he takes some time to examine this uh, teen girl's room. And this is what he sees. I crept over to the closet door, which had hundreds of photos taped to it from top to bottom. There were snapshots of Gina and her dad, of her mother who lived outside Detroit, snapshots of people I didn't recognize, and lots of photos of her favorite movie stars cut out of magazines. I was pleased to see that the photo I had given her, my class photo from last year, was taped up right above the doorknob, right between Dennis Quaid and Tom Cruise. This is such an amazing combination of uh, of movie actors from the time period. Dennis Quaid, Mark, Tom Cruise. I love it. Um, one of those things is not like the others. And uh, his name is Dennis. Uh, <laughs> uh, this, again, seems like a moment where we're learning so much about R.L. Stein and how he thinks. And he's like, yeah, teen girls, they love Dennis Quaid. <laughs> Yeah, I um I never had a, a thing for Dennis Quaid personally as a teen girl, but it might have been because he played like the dad in the parent trap and so I always saw mm. him as more of like a gentle paternal figure and not a teen heartthrob. Sure, sure. <laughs> um this is a good good sidebar opportunity. Did you have any uh photos like cut out magazine photos of celebrities uh on your walls when you were younger? Mm. When I was in elementary school, I had a big crush on Vice President Al Gore. <laughs> um, I had written to him. He sent me back a headshot. Um, so that was on my wall. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> um, I had uh, for a while pretty much a shrine as a child to Gillian Anderson. That's so um, cute. She's just, so beautiful. I, I would buy <laughs> I would buy any magazine that she was featured in and cut out all the photos and just put them all over. I remember particularly like one, I think, from TV Guide that was uh, like a pullout photograph, like multiple pages folded up. I had taken it, I had put it above my closet, like on the little bit of a wall right above the closet. Wow. Um, but yeah, there were various other photos all over the place. Um, <laughs> and then one photo of Dennis Quaid right, ab <laughs> right above my bed. <laughs> one other moment I found interesting. Uh, I say that like I don't have any more, but I do. <laughs> this comes on page 122. This is a story that is told to uh, Kara by Lisa. Um, do you know if Lisa is a, is she a Fear Street character? Yeah, so Lisa is um, Corey Brooks's girlfriend in okay. um, The New Girl. She's sort of shady sides town gossip, and she works for the newspaper and stuff. She's in a uh, she's in a few of the books. Okay, yeah, because I know in the new girl they have like the uh, oh we're best friends relationship, mm -hmm. and then eventually, once Corey gets over the new girl, he recognizes that oh yeah, Lisa's the one for me. Yeah. Um, so she tells uh, a story to <laughs> a, a story to Kara that I think is very funny. 
Uh, it actually starts the very last line of page 121. It goes like this. Uh, again, this is Lisa speaking. She says, Well, I was just thinking about this girl I used to know. Her name was Shanna, and she went with a guy named Rick for a short time. And I don't know what made me think of it, but I just remembered that Shanna told me about this time she was making out with Rick, and Rick was chewing gum, only Shen didn't know it, and somehow the gum ended up in Shanna's mouth. Yuck, says Kara. Yeah, that's what Shanna thought. So she broke up with him and never said another word to him. Great story, Lisa, I said, picking up her sarcasm the way anyone did after being around her for a few minutes. <laughs> um, I just love that little story there about the um, just traveling bubblegum. <laughs> I feel like that is a real thing, but I've never really known anybody to, to break up over it. I think usually it's more like, a, oh, wow, thanks. I've got gum now. <laughs> Yeah, I I don't know why they chose to include that, but I feel like it's not Rick's fault. I mean, when it when you're doing that sort of activity, who knows what's going to happen? <laughs> I mean, if the gum's there, I mean, what if Shanna initiated it and the gum, like he was just peacefully chewing his gum? Yeah. She has to expect whatever's going <laughs> to come. <laughs> Moving on, <laughs> I have a couple other moments, just two. Or maybe maybe three. I'll go with three because I, 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 there's so much in this book. Oh, no. <laughs> Page 160. I just wanted to put a little bit more emphasis on this moment. Uh, you did mention it in the, in the plot recap. This is the moment where Mark really sort of uh, <laughs> uh, somehow successfully distracts the bad people, the white monkey cult, specifically Mr. Marcus, from <laughs> decapitating his uh, one of his parental units by throwing that white monkey skull that he kept in his pocket. He has this idea. He's like, you know what? Oh, this this guy, this Mr. Marcus, he's turned directly in my line of sight. I'm just going to take this monkey skull and I'm going to throw it right at him. And this is what happens. Uh, again, page 160. He turned in my direction just as I heaved the tiny white monkey head. His hood was back on his shoulders. His face was revealed vulnerable. Perfect, I thought. Perfect. The white monkey head sailed through the darkness. It sailed right over his shoulder. I missed. I missed by several inches. <laughs> I love that he just whiffs it in this very uh, sort of tense and climactic moment. And somehow it works out all right anyway, because uh, their parents are so with it that they just take this opportunity and start tackling everybody. <laughs> and the cult members are so unprepared. They don't know what to do. Some of them just stand there. Some of them start running away immediately. This is a very bad cult. I'm not impressed by the white monkey. <laughs> yeah, I am also not impressed by them. They're just, they seem a little bit thrown together. For sure. And in addition to that, we have, um, in, in, in contrast, really, the parents of Mark and Kara, the, the uh, Mr. and Mrs. Burroughs, uh, being very put together and very with it. So much so that almost immediately after they have subdued Mr. Marcus, they are like starting to quip a lot about the situation that they're in, despite the fact that they almost had their heads cut off. We have this great line from Dad on page 163. Where he says, uh, he's, he's, he's shoving Mr. Marcus towards the house. Come on, move. I want to get out of this robe. I never did like going outside in a bathrobe. <laughs> 
it reminds me, like, my mind went immediately to the very end of Clue the movie, where it's revealed to us that uh, Mr. Green is part of the FBI, and he uh, he says, like, uh, as a quip at the very end, the last line of the movie, I'm gonna go home and sleep with my wife. <laughs> I feel like that's exactly the the vibe or the aura that Mr. Uh, Mr. Burroughs is given off here. <laughs> yeah, you, um, you often see with Fear Street books, they kind of ended on some sort of a joke or a moment to lighten the mood yeah you've seen you've seen a dog have its (laughs) neck snapped but time for a little levity (laughs) (laughs) the very last bad moonlight moment i have for you comes on page 168 the very last page of this book it is that moment where (laughs) this this hot and heavy relationship between mark and gina has been ripped apart gina has moved back to detroit Mark and Kara, they're about to move to a new location, too, uh, with their FBI family. And we get that uh, written note <laughs> shoved inside the... the. <laughs> oh, no, it's in the mouth. It's in the mouth of the monkey skull. Uh, can you keep a secret? I love you, Gina. I rolled up the slip of paper and stuffed it back into the monkey's mouth. I held the white monkey in my hand. For the first time, it didn't feel cold. It felt very warm. I tossed it up into the air, caught it, and stuffed it into my jeans pocket. (laughs) This is such a beautiful moment. They've really conquered uh, evil. Uh, The coldness of evil has been replaced with the warm embrace of love and Gina's hot to trotness. And uh, I feel like we've we've really come out the other side of this thing. Success. I think those two are going to make it. I just had one more to add, if that's okay. Please do. The writing here isn't so much humorous as the imagery that it conjured for me. Um, Mm -hmm. So on the bottom of page 151, when Mark and Kara and Gina are trying to spy on the hooded figures in the woods, it says, We kept low, walking around the circular clearing, following her, our wet sneakers making no sound on the soft powdery snow. I could hear soft music. It sounded like a flute, maybe a recorder. And this part made me laugh because I can only think of one recorder song, and that song is Hot Cross Buns. <laughs> I don't even know if other songs, you can play other songs besides Hot Cross Buns on the recorder. That's the only one. It comes with it. When you buy a recorder, it's got some music sheets inside, and it's just Hot Cross Buns. I, yeah, I, I almost noted that moment simply because I love the idea of them playing a recorder. I do not understand this cult at all. They're obsessed with monkey skulls. They hoard weapons. They're very against police and courts. They want to take back America by dressing up in their stinky robes and gathering in the woods and starving dogs and playing recorder. What is this group doing? I think I was thinking because, you know, I've read a lot of Fear Street books and there's never any other mention of this white monkey brotherhood. And um, I, I think this is probably why I guess they just disbanded after this book. Um, but I love the idea of a cult on Fear Street. And that's something that like you don't see too often. I don't think this was the right cult, but there should be a cult. <laughs> So 
This is our segment called Win, Lose, or Die, and this is where we decide whether we give this book a win rating, meaning it's really great, a lose rating, meaning we don't recommend it to you, dear readers, (laughs) (laughs) or die, which means it's just really bonkers, and um, we like it in a very hilarious sort of way. (laughs) Jeffrey, what do you think about this? Do you give it a win, lose, or a die? So I give this one a big win, actually. (laughs) Um, This might be like one of my new favorite Fear Streets. I was not anticipating this at all. I'll I'll be honest, like, you know, I, I, I have almost all of the Fear Streets, like all of them like all of them. I look at all their covers. I figure out which ones I want to read next. It's it's quite a, you know, there's with well over a hundred of them, you've got to be somewhat judicious in which ones you choose to read. Yeah. And Missing, like, didn't quite make my list. I, I, I mean, uh, sorry, Gabrielle, uh, but <laughs> it, it just it just didn't seem super appealing to me, despite it being a really early number. So I wasn't thinking about how much I might like it. I was thinking maybe this would be one I didn't like. But I loved it. Uh, it feels very atypical from usual Fear Street fare. And I think in that way, it's kind of unfair to judge it against the others in some ways. But I don't care. Uh, I'm going to judge it. I'm going to say it's it's one of the better ones. Uh, I found it surprisingly tense and brutal, like in those moments uh, with, of course, the dog and the attempted decapitation <laughs> of the parents. I also found it fairly mysterious. Of course, it had its predictable moments, but I didn't have any idea what was going on at all until pretty much the end and it was also like quite a bit more mature than some although still really very silly i think it's it was a strong early entry in the series that sort of points to like maybe a different direction they could have gone down i guess ultimately i'm happy they didn't go down this direction and that they stayed with more teen centric uh plots but as a as a sort of standalone within this larger universe i i enjoyed a lot um how did you feel about this one i'm so thrilled that you thought it was great. I also thought it was great. I would give it a win for sure. This was my second reading of this book. And so I knew what was coming, but I felt that it was very intriguing. I liked the fact that no one was exactly who they seem. So there was a lot of mystery about it. And I think that the premise itself was pretty scary because if you were a teen and your parents were missing, and this is in the 90s when you don't have cell phones and like ways to find them, that's so scary. And they didn't even know anybody in the town they could turn to. So even that on its own was was pretty scary. But as you said, the plot was really unique. Like the twist was super unique for A Fear Street. Um, he didn't hold back with this one. I thought it was really great. <laughs> Yeah, what you're saying in particular about like that fear about like where are my parents is something that I specifically remember feeling when I was little and you know my parents were out late at night and I didn't know where they were or what was going on or how to get in contact with them and like the thoughts that go through the characters heads there was one moment uh, I remember when not sure if it's Kara or Mark, they were thinking like, am I an orphan now? What does that mean? Where am I going to go? What am I going to do? Like, I remember having those thoughts when I was a kid um, in in an era before instant connectivity. Uh, Those were were real childhood concerns, (laughs) especially if your parents were really hip and cool and uh, (laughs) 
and hung out with mysterious young hunks. (laughs) Yeah, so I think this was just a great combination of like funny, laughable moments, but also a lot of mystery. Definitely recommend to our listeners. (laughs) For sure. Read this one. If you haven't read it, get lost in the Fear Street Woods for a while. Just don't fall down into that that awful (laughs) dog-infested pit. Our next segment is called Final Exam, where we play, I don't know, goofy trivia related to the book setting or era. We play around, we we have fun, we create some opportunities to sort of gag on and enjoy these books in a, in a game-type fashion. So, uh, Katie, I'll turn it over to you. What final exam questions do you have for me? <laughs> okay, let's say uh, we're going out to dinner and there's only three available options on the menu. Which would you choose? Option A is cornflakes with Coke instead of milk. (laughs) Option B is a piece of Pete's pizza, but you clearly see them drop it on the floor before they give it to you. (laughs) And then option C is a cocktail called a white monkey skull, which is made of milk, vodka, and pureed cauliflower with a white chocolate drizzle on top. Okay, definitely going with the slice of Pete's pizza (laughs) dropped on the floor. I mean, (laughs) I'm not totally averse to like eating eating stuff that has fallen on the floor temporarily. (laughs) Five second rule. Five second rule. I would stretch it to ten second even. Like it's gonna. Well, it depends. And now I'm thinking about how dirty the floor of Pete's pizzas is. Um, yeah, I'm still going to go with it because that last one sounded intriguing and then it got real gross. I had to find, I had to think of some white ingredients. <laughs> Clearly I'm not a mixologist. So, so which one would you choose? Mm, I think I'd go with the cornflakes with Coke. <laughs> cornflakes with Coke. Well, this is actually a good segue into one of my questions, which is, is somewhat similar, of course. It is based on this iconic moment from the text. So we may as well do it. All right, here's my here's my scenario. Your parents are missing. There's no food in the house except cereal and stale bread. You're going to eat that cereal, but you can only pour over it one of three things. <laughs> Diet Coke. Dr. Pepper or 7-Up? Which you choosing? I would definitely go with Dr. Pepper. Diet Coke is... I'm not a fan of diet things. And uh, 7-Up, I feel like the color of that mixed with the cornflakes wouldn't be, like, <laughs> pleasing. <laughs> and um, Oh, you think it would be pleasing the other way? <laughs> it would kind of look like a, like a soup, like a stew. <laughs> and Dr. Pepper oh. has, like, a strong flavor, so it would probably, like, cover up the... Um, the weirdness mixed with the cornflakes. I do agree. The sort of <laughs> the plummy type flavor of Dr. Pepper, I think, could potentially maybe go with cornflakes. <laughs> but I, I will give one one slight edge in favor of Diet Coke, which is that at least you're not adding on any extra calories. And, you know, we know how bad cereal is for you. So <laughs> just saying, it's an option. <laughs> <laughs> what is what is your next uh, final exam question for me? This is just more of a get to know you question. Do you identify as more of a Star Trek freak or an archery freak and why? <laughs> <laughs> uh, definitely identifying more as a Star Trek freak because to be that, all I really need to do is watch a lot of TV uh, and 
Also, here in the era before DVDs or easily available TV shows on VHS, they just have to make appointment viewing, right? Like, they specifically sit down to watch Star Trek. I think it's after their party. And then they're like, oh, we've seen this episode already, right? But, like, appointment viewing was something I really looked forward to as a kid. So, yeah, I would be a freak for that. Actually, to give you a little bit of evidence for that, when I was a kid, I actually would take the TV guide, which we had a subscription to, and I would create a schedule for my nightly TV watching. I would handwrite a schedule that I then taped to the nightstand right next to my bed telling me what shows I was going to watch every night of the week so I knew which channel to switch to. And I would update it every once in a while, you know, as as shows came and went. Um, but yeah, that was a thing I did. So clearly a Star Trek freak, no question. How about you? Well, I personally have never seen Star Trek. Um, so I guess that makes me by default an archery freak. Um, but I've also never done archery, so... <laughs> It's all right. I mean, if we learned anything from uh, Cheryl Blossom and Riverdale, it's that you can pick up archery real quick and be a, a total marksman in no time. Yeah. And I think if there was one fictional character that I would aspire to be, it's Cheryl Blossom. So <laughs> yeah, let's go ahead and go with archery freak. <laughs> all right. I have one last final exam question for you. So, okay. Scenario. <laughs> um, well, maybe I have to revise this slightly. Not you walk into, but you climb in through the window of your girlfriend's room and see on her closet door magazine cutouts of her celebrity crushes, Tom Cruise and Dennis Quaid. <laughs> Now, unfortunately, in this scenario, uh, you are not the person between them. Yeah, apparently your girlfriend has uh, thrown your photograph in the trash. So who is the celebrity crush on the wall between them? Who is who is the perfect, like, halfway point in your mind between Tom Cruise and Dennis Quaid? Let's see. So this is, does it have to be 1990 specific? It doesn't have to be. Um, no, go with go with who, whoever you think makes the most sense. Let's see. In 1990, I probably would have been in to like Theo Huxtable. Um, I probably oh. would have been into, I guess this was even before my Al Gore days. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, you could, you could, there's nothing stopping you from putting <laughs> Al Gore right between. <laughs> if I was into Al Gore in 1990, I would have been like a very um, political <laughs> child. <laughs> True. I would have had my finger on the pulse of American politics. Um, let's go with maybe like Zach Morris. Zach Morris. Okay. Yeah. All right. How about you? Um, are we going to stick with Jillian Anderson? <laughs> no, 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 no. We, we have to be consistent here. So I'm imagining uh, you've got Tom Cruise on one side, Dennis Quaid on the other, and <laughs> right between them, you have Tom Arnold. That's who I'm imagining. <laughs> Because I, I do not understand Gina's taste one bit, but I feel like Tom Arnold is it, probably. That makes so much sense. <laughs> Somehow. <laughs> This has been an episode of Super Chillers, uh, and we're going to pick our book for next episode out of our lucky hat here. 
So this is me shuffling. <laughs> shuffle, shuffle, shuffle. <laughs> shuffling around. <gasps> Fate is on our side. You probably can't read this, but it says <laughs> Sweet Valley High Mystery, an evil twin by Francine Pascal. Oh, wow. <laughs> so this is a Christmas set. Wow. All right. So I just want to tell everybody we did not plan this. Um, <laughs> this is a, a beret full of all of our options. We have a lot of options in there. But this was one that was added, I think, recently in order to, like, you know, eventually maybe get to some sort of wintry set text and can't get more than this. I think there's like, isn't the cover of it a broken Christmas ornament? Yeah, if if I recall, that's what it looks like. It's a very threatening sort of Christmas ornament. I am thrilled. I am so excited that we're <laughs> going to be doing this one. It's like extra long too. Oh man, I'm going to start yeah. reading it now. <laughs> so do you have any advice for our listeners as we close? I do. Student bodies, I want you to remember, it's better to toss a rhinestone bedazzled monkey skull and miss than to never toss at all. And I would like to tell our student bodies, no relationship is worth crossing Fear Street Woods after dark. (laughs) (laughs) Good night. Good night. (laughs) 